0: Well, good morning. If we haven't met, my name is Scott. I'm one of the pastors here and uh, we're wrapping up a series today called Rooted. I wanted to begin today with telling you guys three stories. There's a, a movie that came out a while ago. Some of you'll remember it, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Well, this kind of goes the bad, the ugly, the good. And um, the, the central theme of this story is that I am not a great evangelist. And the first story begins when I was 14 years old. I played club baseball all the way through high school. And I can remember vividly one day, I was playing second base with my friend Kyle. We were alternating, taking ground balls. And this was during the the what would Jesus do craze of the late 90s, where everybody wore these WWJD bracelets. I saw a guy this last week wearing one. I'm like, oh, man, I know those are still around. I would have bought one for today. And uh, so I was wearing one and we're taking ground balls. And all of a sudden, in between ground balls, Kyle goes, Hey, so what would Jesus do? And I don't know why, but I just never expected anybody to ask me that question. I don't know what I was thinking wearing the bracelet. I mean, it's a conversation starter, but I just didn't know what to say. And so I kind of stumbled over my words, what would Jesus do, what would Jesus do? And so sadly what I did is I started listing off all the things that Jesus wouldn't do, which ironically corresponded to all of Kyle's favorite habits. And so I was like, you know, he wouldn't sleep with his girlfriend, um, he wouldn't get drunk, he wouldn't get high, he wouldn't look at porn, and it was a great moment. Kyle never asked me a question like that ever again. Then a few years later, as a summer job, I went to work at Ben and Jerry's, which is basically the greatest place on earth. Um, They have the best ice cream. It was amazing. The only challenge was, is I worked with 15 females. I was the only guy. And one of the girls who joined our staff um, immediately figured out that I was going to school to be a pastor. And she apparently was not a big fan of this. And so from the first hour on the floor, she began peppering me with questions and not the kind, gentle kind of questions, the kind of attacking questions by lunchtime. She was just pounding me. So Scott, you're a Christian, right? Yeah. Do you believe that I'm going to hell? She goes, well, as a Christian, you believe that if you don't know Jesus, you're going to hell, right? So I'm going to hell, right? Hey, did you know Scott thinks I'm going to hell? You know, And so all afternoon, she kept peppering and peppering and peppering me. And finally, about 4.30, I just said, yes, you're going to hell. <laughs> That's the ugly. Um, <laughs> and then after I graduated from seminary, I picked up a second and a third job. And one of those jobs was at Starbucks which kind of fueled my coffee habit, um, which was already happening. And I can remember just going, okay, I don't want to do what I did with Kyle. And I don't want to do what I did at Ben Jerry's. I don't want to put one more stumbling block in somebody's way where it makes them hard to see Jesus because of me. And I can remember that I just did my best to bury the fact that when I wasn't at Starbucks, I was a pastor. I just buried the lead whenever I could. And one day this girl got hired, And it was very evident from the day that she got hired that she was a lesbian. And I'm a Baptist pastor with all the stigma that goes around that. And so I was terrified of her associating all of this stigma with me before she even met me. So I just went out of my way to be generous to her. I went out of my way to serve her. I went out of my way to welcome her into our store and to train her and to get her ready to serve a billion caramel frappuccinos. And... And so a few weeks in, I got ready to leave to go to my other job, being a pastor. And she said, hey, where are you going? I said, well, I have to go to my other job. And she goes, well, what do you do? I'm I'm a pastor. She goes, oh, I should have known that. And I'm like, well, what do you mean? She said, well, as soon as I came in the store from the very first day, you've done nothing but go out of your way to serve me and care about me and love me and include me. I should have known you were a pastor. And so I tell that story to, to basically paint a picture for you that, that my life, my past, is a broken mix of successes and failures, of living out my faith publicly. Those are just a short selection of my stories. And I think if we were to sit across the table, we could sh- share stories, and you would tell me yours And there'd be some great moments like with Darsha at Starbucks. And there'd be some terrible moments like Kyle on the baseball field. And some of you today are here and you haven't been on the giving end of those stories. You've been on the receiving end of those stories. People have yelled at you with a bullhorn. People have come at you with judgment and condemnation. Some of you even coming here today is a huge step because you've met people like me who weren't great pictures or maybe you're watching online. And if that's you with all the sincerity I have in my heart, I want to apologize because a lot of times it's, it's difficult to get to Jesus because you have to stumble over Christians. And so if you're here today, man, I'm so glad that you had the courage to show up and I hope that you will give us the grace to show you today in the future, a better, more complete picture of Jesus. Because as Jamie said, we're not perfect. We're broken. But together we've discovered something that we think changes everything. So we're in this series called Rooted. We're beginning like Jesus. This is the beginning of my tenure as the lead pastor of Cornerstone. And we're talking about how did Jesus begin this season of ministry in his life and what can we learn for ourselves? And we talked about four things in this series. Talked about identity, formation, community, and mission. We've seen how Jesus claimed his identity, how he was formed by adversity, how he recruited a community of people around him, and now with that community, he embarks on mission. I'm not sure if you know, but the mission of Cornerstone Church is to glorify God and make followers of Jesus. We talk about that work in terms of four corners. They're here on the screen, on the, on the, on the stage. There's rescue, transform, and then there's love and serve. The first one, rescue, is rooted in this idea from 2 Corinthians 5.18, which says, All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. You know, we know the word reconcile from our human relationships— because every single one of us has had a relationship go sideways where people got in a fight, where there was bad blood before Taylor Swift sang about it and where forgiveness had to happen. And when two people come back together where there's been bad blood, we call that reconciliation. And as followers of Jesus, we believe that that bad blood isn't just a human experience, but it's a supernatural experience that we've been estranged from God. And in Jesus Christ, we can be reconciled to him. And so today we're going to talk about this word mission, the mission that Jesus embarks on and the mission that we can embrace ourselves, the mission that Brandon is going to go around the world, giving evidence and commitment to. And to do that, we're going to dive back in for the final day to Mark chapter one. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, open up to Mark chapter one. If you forgot your Bible, don't worry. The verses will be on the screen But we've been in Mark chapter one for the last three or four weeks, looking at the beginning of the ministry of Jesus. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, Mark's about three quarters of the way through the Bible in between Matthew and Luke. And we're gonna look at three different sections in Mark one today that show us the beginning of the public ministry, the mission of Jesus. And I think there's going to be a lot for us to learn for ourselves. So beginning in verse 14, this is what we... And Read. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Now, after John, that's John the Baptist, was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, go down to verse 21. And they, that's the disciples, went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath, Jesus entered the synagogue and he was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching for he taught as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue, a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, what have you to do with us? Jesus of Nazareth, have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy one of God. But Jesus rebuked him saying, be silent and come out of him. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. You know, as I read through that passage this week and looked at other passages in the New Testament, this this idea just rang true for me, that as Jesus has built his identity, as he's gone through adversity, as he's built a community, he begins going out and taking a step towards the mission that God called into the earth to live out. And it's the same mission that God has given to us. And so if you have a copy of the handout, there's a place on there that says big idea. And I'd encourage you to write this down. Our mission is to verbally and visibly announce the nearness of the kingdom of God. Our mission as individuals, as a church, as followers of Jesus in the world, our mission is to verbally and visibly announce the nearness of the kingdom of God. That's the mission that I was starting and stumbling and fumbling my way through with Kyle and the Ben and Jerry's people and Darsha. That was the the mission that I was trying to figure out how to achieve, to verbally and visibly announce the nearness of the kingdom of God. Now there's some big concepts in this passage and in that that phrase that I want us to unpack this morning, because I can't assume that just because you're in church on Sunday morning that you know what they all mean. And so I'm going to ask some questions of this text with you. The first question is, what was Jesus's message about the kingdom of God? I think the message of Jesus about the kingdom of God can be summed up in the verse we just read, Mark 115, which reads, And Jesus was saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This phrase, the kingdom of God, is the most talked about subject for Jesus in his public ministry. He talks about this subject more than anything else. It's his kind of um, base message. It's his sugar stick. He comes back to it all the time. And the phrase kingdom of God is one that a lot of times you go, oh yeah, the kingdom of God. But most of us don't know what it means. We use the phrase, we don't know what it means. The kingdom of God is everything that falls under the reign and rule of God. Simply put, the kingdom of God is everything that falls under the reign and rule of God. And the people that Jesus was talking to, they would have known this phrase because they were expecting a kingdom. They were living under the kingdom of Rome. They were oppressed, they were slaves, they had no power, they had no vote, they had no say, no one was polling them to get their opinion. Romans didn't care. It was the kingdom of Rome. And so the audience of Jesus is saying, we're hoping for a Messiah and a new kingdom to overthrow the Romans. And so Jesus is constantly teaching about the fact that, "Hey, I am the Messiah and I have a kingdom, but it's not what you would expect. So you have to remember that if you're reading Jesus and all of the ideas of Jesus match yours, you've probably created Jesus in your image because Jesus is always disturbing your ideas. He's always messing them up. If you want to get messed with, if you want to be disturbed, then just hang out with Jesus and he'll upset your apple cart. And so Jesus is saying, this kingdom has come. It's at hand He uses a phrase, the time is fulfilled. The time is fulfilled. The New Testament wasn't originally written in English. That was until the 1500s or 1600s, depending on whether you're reading the Wycliffe Bible or the King James Bible. It was originally written in Greek, and the Greeks have two concepts of time. There's kairos and chronos. Now, if you have a watch on your wrist or you have a watch on your phone, that's chronos time. It's July 31st at 942 AM. That's chronos time. Kairos time is not what time is it. It's what season is it. It's that there's a time that has come. You might say, Hey, I feel like it's just the time in my life when I should. That's Kairos. Now I feel like things are just kind of coming together in this season of my life. That's Kairos. And Jesus is saying, the time has been fulfilled. It's kairos for my kingdom to emerge and for you to be able to step into it. He says also that it is at hand. The, the word for is at hand is the idea of Nearness. So if I was telling you to come to the Performing Arts Center at Yavapai College for church today, I might say, hey, yeah, you you come up from Prescott Valley and it splits and you stay on Sheldon. And if you're on the side with the Prescottonian, you're going to make a U-turn, you know, I might talk to you about what's near. Jesus isn't saying it's near in terms of proximity. He's saying it's near in terms of access, as in like you can get into it. It's right there. I mean, it may be like right next to you, but you don't know it. One of my favorite writers is a man named Dallas Willard. And he said this, Jesus's own gospel of the kingdom was not that the kingdom was about to come or had recently come into existence. Stop right there. Go back to that one. He isn't saying that, hey, this is brand new. Like Star Trek is brand new at the theaters. He isn't saying that it's a brand new idea. He's saying, keep going, that if we attend to what he actually said, it's become clear that his gospel concerned only the new accessibility of the kingdom to humanity through himself. So he's saying, hey, it wasn't accessible before, but now it is. You couldn't get into it, but now you can. There was no vacancy, there was no availability, but now because Jesus has come, you can now enter into the reign and rule of God on earth. Instead of the reign and rule of God of Rome, who oppresses you, who takes your children where you have no rights, where you are a slave, you can now enter to the reign and rule of God where you are free. And we're Americans, so we have no concept of living in bondage or slavery. We have no concept of being told where to go and what to do and having an oppressive rule pushed down on us. But to these people, this idea that I can enter into a world where God is king, not Caesar, changed everything for them. It was hopeful. It was lightful. It made them alive. It gave them encouragement. And so because of that, Jesus says, that's good news. And you should respond to it. And he uses a word that some of you have I talked in the beginning to are going to cringe at. It's the word repent. See, most of us hear the word repent when it's yelled at us through a bullhorn on the square in Prescott. The word repent was a common word in that day and it literally meant turn around. It meant go in a different direction. Pastor Jamie and I were in Phoenix this week and I was trying to give him directions where to go. And I said, yeah, turn right there. And he pulled past and he goes, that was the turn right there. I said, yeah, that was the turn right there. And so he made a U-turn and we went back to that turn in. We literally went around. He goes, oh, that's the right place to go. I went past it. I need to turn around to get into it. That's what repent means. That there was somewhere that I was supposed to be going and I'm going the wrong direction. And so I'm going to accept, yeah, I'm going the wrong direction. I'm going to turn around and I'm going to go the right direction. See, if, if the kingdom of God is accessible and available, if you can live life according to God's way, under God's blessing, within God's reign and rule, and you've not been going the right direction, and that's now available, and you pass the turn, there's no judgment or condemnation that makes you a bad person, or you're terrible, or oh, you're an idiot, you know? Like, don't you know how to drive? No, it's just, I made the wrong turn. I'm going the wrong direction. I now know the right way, and I'm going to turn around. And he says, repent and believe in the gospel. You see, in that world, gospel was as every day a term as hamburger and hot dog is for us. Gospel didn't mean religion, didn't mean Jesus. It meant good news. So if you were on the edge of the empire and barbarians were coming in to take your land and the Roman army was coming, they would send a gospel message. The army is coming. It's okay. You're going to be safe. If there was conflict in the government and a new leader had emerged and, and quelled the rebellion, they would have sent out a gospel message that said, Hey, the roads are going to be paved. You're going to have food next week. Everything's taken care of. This is good news. This is the gospel. And so Jesus is saying: the reign and rule of God is available. Believe in this good news. Believe in this gospel. Respond accordingly. That message, repent and believe in the gospel for the kingdom of God is near, is the over and over and over and over and over and over over message of Jesus. How did he communicate this message? Two ways, verbally and visibly. Jesus communicated this message verbally and visibly again and again. In the second passage we read, a really crazy thing happened in their church. The sermon ended some demon-possessed dude stood up before it was over, started talking to Jesus from the crowd, and from the stage, he exercised the demon. I'm hoping that doesn't happen today at church. Because <laughs> whatever I've just said, you're not going to remember. <laughs> but the people sat back and they, they said this. They said, what is this? A new teaching with authority. This isn't just a good speaker. This isn't just a good orator. This is someone who has authority. We're used to good sermons On the Sabbath. But this, this is not normal. This is different. This is new. Jesus wasn't just teaching verbally, he was visibly giving signs that the reign and rule of God had come. He finishes the sermon and that night says the whole city was at his doorstep for him to heal and transform people. He wasn't just talking about the gospel. He was giving visible signs to it that people could go, wow, this is different. Something has changed. Something is going on here. Many of you have heard this quote by a man named St. Francis. Preach the gospel at all times, if necessary, use words. Anybody in the room heard that quote before? Raise your hand. Okay, so there's two problems with it. One, St. Francis never said that. There's no record of him ever saying that. In writing or in a sermon, the closest thing he said to that was to his friars, your deeds must match your preaching. But there's no record of this ever being uttered by St. Francis. But it's on the internet, so it's true. That's the first problem. The second problem with this is that it's impossible. It's impossible to preach the gospel and never use words. It's impossible to introduce somebody to the kingdom of God and never open your mouth. Jesus announced it verbally. You just read it. Jesus said, last time I checked, said meant use your mouth. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. If Jesus needed to use words, we do too. But there's a heart behind this quote that I want to talk about. And that's the fact that words are not enough. You can't just grab a bullhorn and yell at people and think that you're being like Jesus. You can't just preach at people and think, okay, my job is done. Because Jesus didn't just yell at people. He announced the kingdom of God was near. And then he got down on their level and he met their physical needs so that it was undeniable. Something is happening here. It's real and true. This book isn't just filled with Jesus' sermons. It's filled with miracles and the signs and wonders that his kingdom was real and true. The third question I want to talk about is why is Jesus's model important? This model of verbal and visible is important because we need both. And as long as I've been around church, there's been a battle. Which is more important? Which is more necessary? Evangelism or service? Preaching or Signs. Uh, Telling people about Jesus or showing them his love? And the answer is yes. Both. You cannot separate the two. We're often more comfortable with just living out our faith in front of somebody, but we have to open our mouths too. Even when that's scary. Even when you've screwed up. Even when you've done it poorly. I'm not sure if you're aware, but we live in a post-Christian culture to use a sports analogy, we're no longer the home team. And everywhere you go and everywhere I go, people are skeptical and they're cynical about this. They're not sure it actually adds value to the world anymore. They're not sure it actually means anything anymore. And they're not sure if we're a force for good. Some of them think that we're a force for evil. And so in that world, words are not enough People want to see a sign. People want to see that it matters. Let me talk about it just in terms of my marriage. A word we use in my marriage a lot is the word I love you. Kind of important. So if on my wedding day I said to my wife, I love you, and I never told her I love you again. You know that old phrase, I told you on our wedding day, and if it changes, I'll let you know. Take a guess at how my marriage is going to go. But, If I just told Danny every day, I love you, 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 and yet all afternoon I get home today, I just sit in front of the TV while dishes pile up, dirty diapers happen, vacuuming's necessary, trash needs to go out, she wants a nap. Babe, I love you. Good luck with that. (laughs) Marriage is about about that the same way, too. You can't just say, I love you. She has to see, I love you. She doesn't just want to see I love you. She wants to hear I love you. And the same thing is true for the people in our world who question whether we actually do love them, who question whether God really does love them. It has to be both. And that's why the model of Jesus is so important because to a world that's skeptical and cynical, they need to verbally and visibly experience the reality that God's kingdom is coming in this world and it can change everything. So on the back of your handout, I want to draw your attention to three steps that we can take to follow the example of Jesus. Because going back to the previous slide, if this is our mission to verbally and visibly announce to Prescott and the Quad Cities and the world that the kingdom of God is near, that they can live with God the way that God intended, that they can experience life the way their creator designed it, and our mission is to verbally and visibly announce that, then then how do we do that? The first way we can do that, the first step we can take in following the example of Jesus, is we can determine where we lean. It's important to determine where you lean. Say, Scott, what do you mean? Well, I think each of us have a natural leaning between verbal and visible. I think all of us have a natural bent. If left to ourselves, we tend to kind of lean one way or lean the other. Some of us are really comfortable, not opening our mouth, just serving people, caring about them, meeting their needs, getting out in the community, raking rocks, painting houses, you know, serving people. And that being our expression of the gospel, that being our expression of the kingdom. Some of us, on the other hand, love talking. We have no problem looking at people on the square, maybe that we've never met before and say, hey, if you died tonight, do you know where you'd go? Some of us are like, that terrifies me. I'm getting away from that, you know? But some of us, that's totally comfortable. We're totally comfortable with verbally talking about the kingdom of God. You have to determine where you lean. And I'd encourage you on your handout to write these two words down and put an X on that scale for where you lean. Now, I'm not going to ask you to turn your handout in. This is not a test. It's not pass-fail. It's not A, B, C, D, F. School hasn't started yet. And I'm not going to ask you to hand this in. But the reason that I started this message by talking about my failure and the fact that I naturally lean that way is because I wanted you to enter into that conversation too. I want this to be a place where you reflect on your own life and go, hey, maybe I've been living here or here because it's just safer, because it's more comfortable, because I'm afraid of making a mistake again. The first thing you have to do is determine where you lean. The second thing you have to do is recommit to living in the tension. Recommit to living in the tension. Because if our mission is to verbally and visibly announce the nearness of the kingdom of God, we have to do both, even though both may not come naturally. Even though both may not be comfortable, even both may not be our preference, because if we're going to be Christians, which is Greek for little Christ, then we have to do what Christ did. And that means both. Now, there may be some seasons with a person where you're earning the right and you're serving them, but eventually you are gonna have to open your mouth. And there may be some moments where you're done earning the trust and you just need to step out with courage and share your story, but you have to recommit to living in the tension. Let me ask you a question. When's the last time you had a conversation with someone who didn't know Jesus about your faith? Has it been weeks? Has it been months? Has it been years? It might give you some indication of where you lean. If someone was watching your life, a neighbor, a coworker, a friend, when's the last time you did something that verbally demonstrated the nearness of the kingdom of God? And just so you know, somebody's always watching. Even when you don't think they're watching. You always have an audience. I have one today and you'll have one tomorrow. Charles Spurgeon's a really fiery preacher from the last century. And he said this, every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. Those are tough words. And I'm not here to question your salvation because that's not my place. But I think a lot of us have just given up on the missionary thing entirely. I don't have the gift of evangelism. So that's somebody else's job. We pay somebody at the church for that. If the people in your life only had you, how much of Jesus would they know? If you were the only missionary sent to your family and friends, what would they know about the kingdom of God? See, if you're sitting here, you're either here because you believe in Jesus or someone who believes in Jesus invited you. And you've discovered the mission of reconciliation because it's changed your life. And if it's that big of a deal, I heard you singing and clapping 15, 20 minutes ago. Then doesn't somebody else deserve to get that message? Doesn't somebody else deserve to get that hope? Doesn't somebody else deserve to get the gift that somebody gave you? So we have to live in that tension. We have to live between both of those things. Because God has sent us to Prescott and Prescott Valley and Chino and Dewey and wherever you came from today. So that the people who know you can discover about his kingdom. The third thing you can do is begin looking for opportunities. You can begin looking for opportunities. You know, one of the things I've discovered in my very short life, I'm only 32, so I don't know everything. I've got so much more to learn. One of the things I've learned is this, that you find what you're looking for. In life, you find what you're looking for. If you go into your day expecting everybody to be against you and it to be a terrible day and everything just to go, go, not go your way, you're going to find your day like that. If you think that person's against you and they hate you and they don't like you? Well, you're probably going to find somebody who's against you and doesn't like you and hates you. But if you go into your day expecting that God is on the move and he wants to give you opportunities to share your faith, it's amazing how they materialize. One of my favorite definitions of prayer is this. At its root, prayer is simply paying attention to God. At its root, prayer is simply paying attention to God. So prayer isn't just the thing you do in the car before you go to work or the thing you do over your food before it gets cold the thing you do at night before you go to bed, prayer is you all day long paying attention to the God who has put opportunities in front of you if you only have eyes to see them. If you only have ears to hear them. God is already at work in your family and friends. He's already at work in your neighbors and your coworkers. He's just waiting for you to have eyes to see the opportunities he's put in front of you to join him in that work. Let me go back full circle, back to Starbucks. My shift, I worked on one of them every week, was closing on Saturday night. We were located next to a 24-hour Walmart, so we closed super late. So I would close the store at 11. Luckily, if I was lucky, I would get out at 12, and I'd have church the next morning really early. I did that week after week and month after month. After about seven months of that, I was just exhausted and I felt like I was having no impact. I had not had one significant conversation with anyone there about Jesus. Most people didn't know that I was a pastor. And I had not invited anybody to church. And I'd been there for seven months. And then finally one day, on a Sunday afternoon, we had a night service at my church. I got a text from a friend at work. She said, hey, when is your church tonight? I said, oh, six o'clock, you know. She wasn't the first person to text me, ask, and not show up. So I just kind of sloughed it off. I remember walking on stage that night, looking out kind of right here in the room. There was a pew, and there was one, two, three, four, five, six coworkers. See, I had driven home that night feeling like I was not having any impact at all. And less than 24 hours later, six of my coworkers were sitting in there listening to me preach. And the conversation for the last year then that I served on that staff at that Starbucks totally changed. And the next Easter, one of those six people put her faith in Jesus. Some of you don't feel like you're having any impact. And what I was sent here to tell you today was don't give up. Some of you haven't been attending to the opportunities around you and I've been sent here today to tell you to open your eyes. You are the missionary that God has sent on mission to your family and friends and coworkers and neighbors and you're beloved by God. And he's formed you and prepared you for this moment and he's given you a community of people around you to do this mission with. So let's go do that mission together. Would you pray with me? God, I thank you so much for the gift that you've given many of us in this room that is new life in Christ. We are new creations. We know who we used to be more than anybody else in the world, God. We know all the reasons we should not be here. All of our brokenness and all of our sin. All the things that should disqualify us from being used by you. And yet, you demonstrated your love for us while we were still sinners you sent Christ to die for us and you announce over us that we are your beloved sons and daughters and we bring you great joy and that's why we clap and sing and shout but God there are people in this room and there are people in our cities people next door to us a cubicle away or an apartment away or a desk away that don't know that love they don't know that hope, and on the reconciliation, and God, you've sent us to them, and it scares us at times to share that. Maybe we failed in the past, God. Maybe we've been rejected. But more than anybody else, you know rejection. So God, we're going to ask you to give us all that we need, the courage, the wisdom, the words, the discernment, to know whether it's a verbal or a visual moment. But God, we're going to pray that you go with us this week as we return to our mission field, the place where you've sent us, to be on mission for you. God, I pray for my friends in this room who've never discovered the life comes when you enter into the kingdom of God, the hope that comes and the freedom that comes. I'm praying for the person in this room who has been trying to do it their way and it's not working. And I pray that they would come to trust themselves to you to do it your way. In your name we pray, amen. The band's going to sing the song in a moment. It talks about Christ being here with us and walking with us and the altar's open. If you want to talk to somebody about entering into this kingdom of God, one of our prayer partners would love to pray with you. If if you want to deal with the fact that maybe you've been hanging out on one side of that tension or the other and you need to re-embrace that, you can come and pray on your own or with somebody or maybe there's somebody that's just heavy on your heart today that you love, that you want to discover Jesus. Maybe you just come and pray for them. This is your time. Stand, sing, pray. But listen to these words, and as the band sings them over you, may they be the desire of our hearts this week. Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com.